This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. Very happy to be here. And as you can see, I am joined by a brand new guest this week. Her name is Melanie Tracek King, and she is an educator. And I'm going to let her tell you the rest of the story because it's quite interesting. This, she is um, basically focused on critical thinking and uh, how do you go about teaching that? How do we talk about that? And you guys know I'm real big on this stuff. Uh, this is really important stuff to me because this was the sort of principle that I kind of hit on or found or lucked into stumbling upon after leaving Scientology. And and it's really been a very, very strong sort of, of, of guidepost for me and, and sort of place to know that I'm... Uh, am I, you know, flying off the rails? Am I going over a cliff or am I, you know, or, or here's the tool set to kind of haul me back and, okay, let's take a look at this again and let's think about this maybe, you know, once or twice or three times and, and that kind of thing. And that this is very, very important as a skill set for avoiding predators and avoiding bad situations or situations where you are going to find yourself out of control because somebody else is controlling you as as we go over with the the topics of coercive control. So Melanie, welcome to my show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you very much for doing this. Now you have uh, a website and you have been teaching at the college level on the topic of critical thinking. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I have a bit of an origin story. You just want me to go into that? Absolutely. Lay it on me. Okay, so um, I'm actually a biologist. My background is plant ecology. Um, my graduate work was uh, the succession of uh, prairies to forests on the Great Plains and fires, and it was wicked fun. And then moved to Massachusetts. I know, I apparently really like starting things on fire. <laughs> fire starter. <laughs> fire starter. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so when we moved to Massachusetts, I got a job teaching at a community college, which I love doing. Um, these are, um, you know, the community college that I teach at is in um, um, an urban area in Massachusetts, and the diversity level there is just wonderful. And so I get all of these great students coming to my class, and I was specializing in teaching non-major science. So... Science for people who don't want to be scientists when they grow up. Ah, uh, okay. That is my, like, I kept thinking, like, I have the best product here, right? I have, here is why you are able to live a long and healthy life and have a phone in your pocket. Like, science is essential for everybody, and um, biology is just really fun. And I realized I was wasting my time. Quite frankly, I, I taught um, intro bio, which is the course that most people around the country, when they don't want to be a scientist, when they grow up and have to take a science elective in college, they take intro bio. Um, side note, one of my favorite questions to ask random people is, um, what do you remember from the last science class you took? And that's usually in college, a biology class. And they get this like deer in the headlight looks. Right. Like, Right. And then you can kind of see this, oh, I do not want to remember this experience. And then they end up with nothing. So I was teaching that class and I tried every way I knew how. And finally, I realized I was wasting 
their time, I was wasting my time. If the purpose of gen ed science is science literacy, teaching students to memorize a bunch of science facts is not the way to go. Exactly. And that's what you wrote about on your website that absolutely grabbed my attention because it was the perfect point to make as an educator on on this topic, especially of science and, and scientific literacy and scientific method. Yeah. And the thing is, I thought I was teaching it. I kept trying to figure out a better way. Yeah. But, you know, science classes are considered at least at our college and most colleges, critical thinking classes. And I didn't know what I didn't know, right? I, I wasn't teaching critical thinking, but I didn't realize that until I did something different. But to my college's credit, uh, I went to the department and I said, you know, why do we teach gen ed science? Well, science literacy, great. Now let's evaluate the courses that we teach. Each of the courses that we ask, we offer for non-majors, does this meet our objectives? And I made the case that intro bio didn't. And so we don't teach it anymore. Mm. And we replaced it, I know, um, we replaced it with, um, sci I call it science for life. And it's a course that was designed to teach, I say skills, not facts. And the three primary skills that I focus on are uh, critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy. And so the whole and you, course could could you break those down for us real fast? Is like what's the difference between like information literacy and science literacy and those? Yeah, um, this is again one of those where if you ask people, even who study this, they're not going to agree necessarily on a definition. But I will tell you my well, from your from your yeah from your perspective. So for me, critical thinking is the ability to draw reasonable conclusions from the available evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Information literacy is the ability to find and use reliable information to make decisions. And science literacy is the ability to understand how science, um, the process of science and how it produces knowledge, and then how to use that knowledge effectively to make right. decisions. Uh, yeah, those make sense with me. Those are exactly the kind of concepts that came to my mind when you said those things. So great. Yeah, my, my whole purpose with the class was um, I wanted it to be, so uh, the website that I have is Thinking is Power. And that came from this idea that, you know, knowledge isn't enough. It, my students carry in their pockets access to basically all of human knowledge. The question is, can they use that knowledge effectively? Right. Right. And so what I wanted was um, I, I wanted them to be able to think and not necessarily remember all of the facts I was asking them to remember. Um so the website thinking is power came from that effort to teach my students um and a lot of the content that i teach is on the website as well nice nice so in other words maybe being able to think through a problem from a rational or scientific approach is a more valuable thing to walk away with than knowing with certainty that in you know 1879 uh wilhelm once started the first psychiatry laboratory yeah i actually um i remember the moment that it hit me mm -hmm. and it was the the stages of mitosis and i was actually teaching the stages of mitosis um you know, that's an important concept in biology, but I was using cancer to do such. And, you know, cancer is um, is a disruption of the cell cycle that causes runaway cell growth. And so I thought if I teach my students how the cell cycle works, they will be able to understand cancer better. 
And I remember the looks on their faces and recognizing that they had come to me really not wanting to take a science class mm-hmm. and they weren't going to leave thinking any better of science classes, but worse. I mean, look, if I'm just real here for a second, yeah. I feel like I failed those students. I, I feel like even if they were unfortunately diagnosed with cancer at this moment, is what I taught them useful to them? Um is it helpful? Is it something that they could use in their lives to make better decisions, even if they remembered it, which I don't think they would, but if they did, is it helpful? And this was pre COVID, right? So then we had a a novel virus and a novel vaccine. And I just, I don't think that I provided those students with the skills that they needed to make sense of any of that. I could not agree with you more. And the reason that I think that or the way the way the reason I go there is because it's become abundantly clear to me as somebody who has spent a good deal of my life educating people, obviously not such great stuff either when teaching people about Scientology (laughs) when I was in Scientology, Um, yet I still educate it. And education is a process. And if you do it, and if you care about it, and if you try to do it right, you're trying to impart data to people that they can use and that they will continue to use. And yet, if you're imparting data to people that they don't use, they're not going to retain it. It's that simple. It's that simple. People, you know, why why do I not remember so much from my school? Well, because you haven't used it is why. And that's why I thought you nailed it. When you went, you know, we should maybe be thinking more about teaching skills that broadly apply or could potentially broadly apply across a number of disciplines or fields or areas in life. And if you teach those skills really well, well, of course, they're going to keep using those. And that repetition of use is where you get your certainty and your understanding, your ability to apply from. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And um, at this point, I just wish I could, I wish I could shout from a mountaintop to other science educators that um, like there is a time and a place to learn those facts. I'm not mm-hmm. saying those facts aren't important mm-hmm. ever. Um, science is a process and the process of um, the process is more important than the findings. The most commonly used science um, uh, textbook for non-majors biology, which is the class I was taking, t- teaching, I'm not going to name names, but the most popular textbook across the country is 800 pages long. This is a semester course, right? It is 800 pages long. Right. Who's it is the, also who's going to read all that in one semester and much less retain it. it. Right. <laughs> Memorize it, right? Right. Um, so, so it's 800 pages. Of the 800 pages, the very first chapter has four pages devoted to what they call the process of science. Now, there's little bits drawn in about like this great experiment here, or here's how we design this kind of experiment. But oh my Lord, what a misrepresentation about how science works. And also, like when I started teaching, there really wasn't such a thing as epigenetics. For example, like when I was in college, Pluto was a planet. And I know we feel planet about that. Right. right. In other <laughs> words, facts can change. Yes. 
Right. And I, you know, in prepping today for this, going through your website and looking at some other stuff, I randomly came across a social media meme about how, about something along these lines about how everything I learned as a, as a, as a kid was wrong. Well, it's it. Why? Why? Not because it was wrong then. It's wrong now because we've learned more and things change. Right. Yes. And here's my problem with this. OK, so two things. Let's hope I can remember the second by the time I get done talking about the first. So the first is, what do we mean by fact, right? So when we talk about when something is a fact, I hear people, I spend way too much time on social media, okay? Mm. And in social media, what I hear people say is, when science has proven something, I'll accept it. Science hasn't proven that yet. Science is, like, there's even a, a bill in the Montana State House right now. Uh, that yes, people, yes, please. <laughs> we can only teach science that's facts. No theories, which is how science explains so-called facts. But also, what do we even mean by facts? So the whole point is that um, science is more than just what it knows. It's also how it knows. Right. That's right. In fact, that is, I would certainly say, 90% of the importance of science is the methodology, is the, is the how, because that how is what's got us where we are in a very, very short period of time compared to how long we've been around goofing off, having wars, killing each other, doing all this nonsensical stuff that we do. How come there's a point in time when suddenly knowledge and information and our ability to control our environment just rockets? What What is up with that? Well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that we started applying this procedure to our knowledge gathering and and it works great. <laughs> You know, I'm really glad you said that because really in all of human history, depending on how you define modern humans, we're talking two, 300,000 years and all of that period of time, yep. it's only been within the last couple hundred years, maybe a couple hundred years further, depending on how you define uh, science and the enlightenment. Um, it took us till that time to come up with a process that asks us to test our expectations, our assumptions, our perceptions against reality. Right. And um, what that says to me is that this does not come naturally. We're born thinking, but we're not born thinking like scientists. And right. so science is reliable, but you have to learn how to think like that. Autopilot thinking will lead you astray. Big time. Big time. This, for me, has translated, the way I've discussed this has been to try to stress it as a disciplinary practice rather than just a set of knowledge or information or, you know, here's a list of logical fallacies, memorize them. Oh, great. Now you're a critical thinker. That's like, okay, here's a list of all the moves you're going to make in karate memorize them now you're a black belt it doesn't work that way at all if you do not discipline yourself and practice 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 with the stuff and then practice even more and then just when you think you started getting a grip on it 
kind of come having a little come to Jesus moment and realize you've only just begun, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I think these are important principles in the teaching and understanding of what critical thinking is. It's a discipline. It's a, it's a, it's a skill set that you are learning and constantly improving. It's not some platform or plateau you reach and go, oh, I'm done. And yeah, I, and I, I tend to tell my students, like, it is way easier to notice when someone else is not thinking critically, especially if that person does not agree with you. Yeah. Um, so if you want to start this process by noticing it in others, that's okay. Don't point it out. People don't like that, but it's okay. But the goal is to internalize it. Yeah. You're wrong about something. The question is, what is it? Right. And you won't know that unless you really subject your value, your, your, your beliefs to this process. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you how, what kind of results have you had with this since changing from, you know, intro bio to this new sort of method and, and, and how is that man, you know, like, how does that really work looked in the real world? Yeah. Um, I won't go back and it, the old way of doing this is, um, oh, I, that is my new mission is trying to uh, get to other educators and encourage them to do something else. But as far as what the course looks like, um, the course is set up so that um, it starts with critical thinking and then it moves to information literacy and then finally it moves to science literacy. So it starts with uh, basic epistemology. What do you believe and why? I don't even need to call it epistemology. These aren't necessarily I try to avoid vocabulary if I have to. So that's a um, word that I, often confuses people. Oh, it really does. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and look, if you really study epistemology, then it gets even more confusing, right? It, <laughs> <laughs> it, tell me about it. Cause I, I went down that, that, that rabbit hole one day and I was like, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pulling back. <laughs> um, I actually start the class with witches. Um, I start with, I'm going to tell you a story and I don't want you, don't take notes. This is the only time in class I'm going to say this. Don't take notes. I'm going to tell you a story. And at the end, we're going to talk about it. And the story I tell them is about um, the the witch trials in Europe in the, the 17, 16, 1700s. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, this started from this papal bull. Then there became these... Um, um, it, people were trying to explain what was around them. Like, uh, my crops have died. My baby was born with a birth defect. Um, there's this terrible storm. Um, whatever it is, people wanted to explain. And we often seek supernatural explanations. But in their case, it was witches. So they were scapegoating witches. Um, and the best proof that someone was a witch was being accused or confessing. And usually that confession came by a torture. So I show them witch torture. I show them the Spanish boots and I show them the breast ripper and I show them the, um, oh, it's called the, the something pear. Uh, it was this metal device. I'm forgetting what it's called. You insert it into an orifice, either the vagina or the anus, and then you open it up. Basically it tears the internal, right? It's terrible. Mm. And I tell them mm. I, I, I'm, this is not going to be fun, but this was done to people. Okay. What did people confess to well, there was the famous case of Peter Stump of um, confessing to being a werewolf. And there was the famous cases um, 
of confessing to witchcraft, of um, attending satanic um, rituals where like um, um, uh, virgins were mutilated and and babies were uh, killed in satanic services. Okay, we get to the end. I'm not done with you yet. Let's keep going. And then I go to the satanic daycare panics. Of, of the 1980s. The 1980s. Yeah, I remember those. McMartin and all that. Yeah. Yes. And then I go to QAnon because, look, it's all the same thing. But let's circle back. Why did someone believe so strongly that someone is a witch? Because they clearly did. They were convinced they were right. Why did they think they were right? What was their evidence? And what I want students to do, the vast majority of my students do not believe in witchcraft. Right. So they can look back. It's like a you know, standing back and looking at the whole picture, why did they believe that? What was their evidence for that? Was that good evidence? Okay. How did they come to those beliefs, right? They were justifying it, moving forward, moving forward. And what I'm trying to get them to do is internalize this. It is easier to learn the process of critical thinking when you're not evaluating a belief that's important to you. Big time. Big time. In fact, I'd say it's absolutely necessary. If I started with climate change denial or GMOs or um, vaccines, I would immediately turn off certain students. That's right. So I start with a place that I'm not going to trigger them. What I want them to do is internalize that process to think about how people come to their beliefs. How did you come to your beliefs? Okay. What is your reasons for that? Could you be wrong? If you were wrong, how would you know? Right? So I start with that and then I get to move forward. I I, I um, go to perception and memory, um, which is, you know, we, we think that if I experienced it, if I tried homeopathy and it worked, it means homeopathy works. If I see a ghost, I know ghosts are real because I saw one, right? We assume our personal experiences are telling us an exact replica of what reality is. Like they're trustworthy. So I'm trying to teach my students that they shouldn't trust that, right? And, and then I go on into um, skepticism and, and logical fallacies and biases. And all of that is leading up to um, what I want get students to understand is that they should be skeptical of what they hear and of their own beliefs. Um, be curious about why they might be wrong about why someone else disagrees with them. All of this is putting into practice the kinds of things I want them to um, uh, to apply to themselves. As I move forward, I, um, I kind of think of it like a spectrum. Like I start with witchcraft, which is probably not going to trigger anyone. And then I move little bits at a time. I include pseudoscience and science denial and conspiracy theories and all those, but I'm just moving little bits at a time. I don't get to something like vaccines or climate change denial to the end of the semester. And that's on purpose because by then I want them to understand and be able to um, apply the kinds of tools that I've taught them. Um, I don't get to, so I moved to information literacy. I call all of that critical thinking. It's, you know, epistemology and metacognition and so on. Um, information literacy, like if I just get students to go to um, Google and try to find information, their own biases are going to lead them. Exactly. They can't understand information literacy until they understand how they interact with information. And then science. I mean, if I just start with science, 
students don't know why we need science to begin with, right? We need science because we're irrational and we're biased and we're easily fooled. But if I just start with, okay, here's the process of science, be like, okay, that's great. But, you know, why do I even need that? Right. And that was the number one question, by the way, that I remember asking myself through a lot of my schooling, especially once it got to the higher levels of, you know, of high school, I guess I could say, was the honest question. I was really struggling. It wasn't just to be a smart ass. I was really wondering, what use am I going to have for this information? I never, ever, ever have had not even a short conversation, much less an involved discussion with my parents about calculus or algebra or uh, so, you know, hit deep historical dates. Yeah, I just don't have any use for this. And I yeah. know what the real world looks like enough to know that people aren't out there using this stuff. So why are you making this so important to me? Why is this so important when I know it's not? And that was the thing that I would bump into in my education more than anything else. And it was a public school education than, you know, than anything else. It really used to bother me a lot. And, and no one ever, no one in that system ever had a satisfactory answer to, to my questions. I feel like I'm finishing a thought that I started earlier, but lost the plot about, but it is um, with the course, I, I really try and impress upon students. Um, there's a great quote, um, I think it's Schick and Vaughn in their, their book, How to Think About Weird Things. And it's um, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your decisions. And the quality of your decisions is determined by the quality of your thinking. Yeah. So, what I got is thinking is power. I want my students to be empowered with better thinking. And to do that, I needed to change what I was doing. There we go. There we go. How, again, what kind of results now? How has this changed in terms of your students' attitudes? I mean, having taught before, and feeling like you're running into walls and students are not interested and they're not engaged with the material to changing over to this mode or, or you know, sort of curriculum. What's been the difference in results? Uh, yeah, before I would have the random student who actually showed some interest in biology, but that didn't happen very often. Um, now I get students, um, Last semester, I had a student who sold homeopathy. Oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. She did not. She sold Herbalife. Oh my! Okay. I do a case study on Herbalife. It's at the very end of the semester. Really? So it, yes. Oh, um, that's so great. <laughs> right about after the midterm, she saw it coming up, and she emailed me, and she said, "You know, I see that there's this case study coming up, and I have to tell you." Um, I sell Herbalife, and so I think this is going to be a problem for me. And so, you know, I responded that, you know, thank you for telling me, but, um, you know, this class is about evaluating various beliefs. I'm not asking you to accept what I'm saying at all. The whole point is to just question something. So, you know, I'm here to support you, but, you know, we're going to do the case study and, and let's figure out how it goes afterwards, what you learned. Um, I've had students sell supplements. 
I've had students uh, who sold supplements, sorry. And it's very interesting them experiencing the things that were studying in class. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards to have them, um, I try to set in the classroom, um, I try to model the ability to be humble about our beliefs and to be willing to be wrong and for it to be okay to change your mind. And I have gotten wonderful responses from these students afterwards who've struggled with these issues. I've had um, uh, create young earth creationists. I've had climate change deniers. I mean, those are on the extreme ends, mm -hmm. but I've had a lot of students who um, I do with uh, a unit on um, psychic readings. I actually teach my students to be psychics. Uh, and so I, we can talk about that. It'd be like, um, but I've had students whose, um, you know, parents um, do psychic readings, that kind of, and so they're with me along for the ride and we get to all experiences together and um, they come back with just a, I loved this class. It's the most important class I've ever taken. It saved me money. It is, um, which I always, um, I always tell them that I'm skeptical of only because I know somebody wants my money and I work too hard for my money to waste it on something that doesn't work. So that's an ongoing joke. Um, but yeah, to, to have them um, uh, along for the ride and being um, open to this process, I really think that only happens though because um, because I try to approach the class with um, humor. I use a lot of humor. Um, and um, it, it's always an environment of um, encouraging intellectual humility. And it's a process. That's why I say like the, the class is ordered in a specific way for that reason you have to go through the whole thing um but students really um they're the reason i, I continue to do this awesome awesome so clearly having some success with this it's yeah, it's very right. interesting to me because one of the things about cult intervention or dealing with people in an extremist mindset you could say or or a place where they are no longer not only not critically thinking about something, but have actually sort of removed that aspect of their thinking from the equation when it comes to this particular topic, whether it's Scientology or Jehovah's Witnesses or even non-religious stuff, you know, I mean, even people who got involved with Nexium or, or, you know, business things can get into that headspace where you just and this is a, this is one of the things I've described as a phenomenon of ex, of extremism is you cease to have the ability to critically think on that topic because because clearly you you know you've bought into and accepted it as an ultimate truth and you know you could with a with a capital T have you run into um, that level of problem with your class and and if so how did you deal with it. I have never run into that. Great. Good. <laughs> I'm very happy. Run <laughs> I run into that in the real world mm -hmm. all the time. Right. Uh, social media, for sure. I think the, the power of the class, look, I often joke that um, I have them captive for four months. You know, like they want a grade. They need the credit. Um, I 
take them through a process that it, it, on the in the real world people come from different places like even the people that come to my website what i want them to do is start at the beginning and work through the end but i know that other people aren't as linear as that i am and people don't have the time or the space or whatever um my students do and so you know what just stick with me like we're gonna go through this together uh i'm you know, willing to talk about these things. If you need to talk about them, you know, please come see me if you're needing support and they do, but um, we get through the process together. And I think the process is what's important. It takes time, right? If we're talking about a lifetime of thinking and you're trying to change it, even in four months, that's a big deal. And yeah. you certainly it is, it's even harder on, on something like social media. So I've been really lucky in that way. I actually, um, fun side tangent, I do start lecture with witches, but technically I start the class with a personality assessment where um, I uh, literally day one, here's a syllabus. And then, so I have this friend who is an astrologer and a psychic, and she's actually really good at what she does or she's she's very famous but you know she knows I teach this class and that you know I'm pretty skeptical but she's willing to test how good she is if you want to participate and do a personality reading so if you do please fill out this basic information I ask them a few leading questions you know like if your house was on fire and you could take one thing what would it be that's mm. those kinds of things um really basic and the next class hopefully I'll have her results back in time and I'll be able to give this to you and so the next class, I give them their personality readings. Okay, she knows that we are here to evaluate her. So I need you to not influence other students or be influenced by other students. When you're done reading your reading in silence, um, we're going to vote on how accurate she is. On a scale of one to five, how accurate is she? So they put their heads down, you know, she's a three, she's a four, she's a five, you know, they keep their hands up. By and large, um, I've done this for years, probably 3.4, uh, sorry, 4.3 to 4.5 out of five on average. She's really accurate. And then by that point, students are, I can't believe she got me and she's, oh, great. If you're comfortable, get with another student and Talk to that student about what she was accurate and why do you think she was accurate, right? Just um, talk about your readings. And sometimes it, it can take like 10, 15 minutes because confirmation bias kicks in and they pick right. out the different parts of their reading that are uniquely applicable to them, but not to... But then they realize they all got the same one. Like, I did not invent this. Ford did this in the 1940s and 50s or whatever it was. James Randi made it. Like, this is a longstanding thing. But the point is I fool them literally on day one and day two. Uh, and then we get this fun, okay, yes, you all got the same thing. And um, yes, I lied to you. And, but I did it for educational purposes, you know, that kind of thing. And we make light of it. And um, then I teach them why they fell for it. You know, Barnum statements and confirmation bias. And um, I appeal to authority, right? You, you trusted me as the authority in the classroom, you know, I'd like to tell you, I won't lie to you again, but <laughs> <don't>. <laughs> you know, I'm starting with this kind of humor. Now, yeah. the reason I bring that up is because I have had students who after day one leave class saying they're psychic or their parents are psychic 
and they firmly believe in this stuff and they firmly believe that they're going to get um, these certain readings that say these certain things. And I, I do feel bad doing that, especially when those kinds of moments happen. Um, what I've noticed, though, is the way that that's approached is important. The lesson is important, right? The lesson is you can be fooled. Exactly. And look how it does fool you. Exactly. Right. Because so that's, that's the an, that is the first barrier. That's the first thing you got to pop the ego balloon somehow, and it's really hard because people really get themselves up on a dais on this. They and and it's understandable. It's completely understandable. But it's but it's not the path to knowledge or or enlightenment or growth. You know, is to think you know it all already. There's the famous Richard Feynman quote. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. There you go. But look, if I just told my students, you can be fooled to be like, yeah, 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 whatever. It's a great but object lesson it. in it. I love it. All right. So, but I fool them to prove to them they could be fooled, but there's a lot of danger, right? In, in um, deceiving students that early on, but the way that I do it is with humor, with, like we can all be fooled, right? I, you know, this is for educational purposes. At least I didn't take your money, right? Um, and in all of my years doing this, which is about five, five or six at this point, so I guess not that long, but um, I've had maybe two students who claim to have psychic powers or their parents had psychic powers and were a little bit later to get onto what I was doing. But it's never taken me more than about three weeks. Perfect. Perfect. And you have you have a nice environment for that as well because of the fact that it is a class. They are paying for it. There is a grade that matters to them in some fashion. So their investment in it is is there, you know, unless they completely blow you off. But so far that doesn't seem to have happened, which is great. You know, there's a little bit of a of a of a sunk cost in it not sunk cost fallacy i'm saying there's a little bit of a sunk cost it's a real thing and and that <laughs> propels them forward to be able to you know to be able to question or or at least kind of go along for the ride a little bit and that's that's a that's a great environment to do that in i i i i, I think it's great <laughs> <laughs> i have a good time with it it's fun yeah i mean it's very important uh, actually and that does lead me to another question or area um now you are you know you are obviously this is all education and this is science and you are a scientist you have done real science i am a site guy and i'm always trying to explain and talk about things you know from a site kind of perspective ironic because i came out of scientology which absolutely despises psychology and psychiatry uh i mean like like it's hard to overstate how much they hate psychiatry. It's it's really bad. So I, I obviously am no longer in that headspace, but I've come to learn or think about emotions and our emotional then the emotional component of our of our lives because it's a basically the thing that I believe drives us is our, is our emotional life more so than our cognitive life. I believe our, our cognitive life is, is in a way an awful lot of work on our part to justify our emotion-based decision-making. <laughs> and yet, 
how do we get better at that? How do we unbalance that? How do we maybe, you know, tip the scale so we're not so emotionally driven and so emotionally out of control? Well, we beef up the cognitive elements of this. But it is a bit of a struggle, a bit of a fight, you know. And I always felt that that piece of information alone is very important to people, that that they should know that, that that emotion is not an artificial concept. It's not something that is unimportant. And it has a great deal to do with why you act the way you do, which is why, I, you know, it's kind of a psych thing. Does this part of it enter into your curriculum in any way? I'm just curious. I'm not, you know, just curious. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think we can talk about critical thinking without talking about emotions. Ah. Um, ah. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody in this field thinks that. So that's, that's very good to hear. Please go on. No, so um, there's a lot of people who fashion themselves as critical thinkers, and I call them pseudo-critical thinkers. Um, usually what's happening is there's an emotional, uh, there's there's a motivated reasoning. They they have right. arrived at a commu- uh, conclusion through an emotional fashion, right. and they use the tools of critical thinking to justify that, right. um, as opposed to to find uh, the truth. Um I realize I took a really long tangent on your last question to answer your question. And if I might, I'll do that again. Sure. Go ahead. Cool. So, um, I do you know the story of Leon Fessinger, um, with the doomsday cult. I'm, I'm familiar with that name, but please remind me of the details. So, um, in, um, I think it was 1954. It's in the 1950s. Um, there is, um, a woman, uh, Dorothy Martin outside of Chicago. She's a housewife and uh, she fashioned herself as a psychic and her medium was um, automatic handwriting. So she would get messages and they would come out through her hands and she would write. And um, one day she got a message uh, from uh, Jesus, but Jesus was going by the name Saldana and was an alien on the planet Clarion. So she started getting these messages from Jesus, right? The reincarnate, or I don't know if he's reincarnated, but anyway, alien Jesus, let's call him, on the planet Clarion. Wow. Uh, and she she had a few followers, um, but she got a message uh, in the summer that the world was going to be destroyed by a flood. Oh, right, and, right, right. We're talking about the cognitive dissonance stuff. Yes. Yes, please go on. So the world was going to be destroyed by a flood, uh, but the aliens, Jesus and the other um, aliens, were going to come save them in their spaceship. Yeah. And um, Leon Fessinger is a psychologist, and I uh, was reading the paper one morning and saw this little note, you know, in the paper that there was this doomsday cult that predicted the world was going to end on, I think it was Christmas Eve that year. And he's like, huh, I wonder what will happen when the world doesn't end, right? What will they do? So he and his fellow psychologist, he and basically his graduate students infiltrated the group and watched what happened over the next few months as they waited for the earth to end in this flood, but they were going to be saved. And it's this amazing story. All these false starts where they think that Jesus is coming, but he doesn't actually come, but they end up saying that it was actually Jesus and uh, this was just a false start. And, um, you know, we just need to be ready and be and, and uh, believe. But here's the thing. They, um, the people who, who believed in this cult, and sorry, we call it a cult now, but um, the people who believed in this, um, 
they were mocked for their beliefs. Mm-hmm. They um, sacrificed for their beliefs. Some of them lost their jobs. They lost their kids. They sold, they, they gave away their money. I mean, the world was going to end, What they need all that other stuff for. So um, they had invested a lot. And um, on the night that the world was supposed to end, um, and it didn't, they came up with all kinds of excuses, but eventually they had to face the fact the world was not going to end. And the way they ended up justifying it to themselves was that their belief had saved the world from the flood. The flood was not going to happen because they believed so strongly. That's right. So it's such, again, a great story to tell students to highlight how they believed really strongly. This was coming from an emotional place, though. This is motivated reasoning. They had a conclusion that was an emotional one at its core. Why um, the, the reasons they were finding to justify that belief all came from an emotionally different place. This is one of those where it's really unfortunate, but the smarter we are, the more educated we are, the better we are at this right? We get better at finding arguments to support something that isn't true. That's right. And that's what they did. And so um, understanding this emotional place and with epistemology, I give my students an exercise um, to evaluate beliefs. And one of the questions is, how do you, how would you feel if you were wrong? And if you would feel defensive if you would feel if you would take that personally if you would um have any sorts of emotions associated with being wrong there's a chance at least that there is an emotional tie to this belief so again it doesn't mean the belief isn't true but it doesn't mean that there's a chance that your emotions are playing a role in um your finding evidence for it so know that when evaluating the belief Exactly. Exactly. I, you know, this is such a tie-in to everything you've talked about, because even if you take this principle back to the witch burnings and the trials and the, and the torturing, why would somebody do that to somebody else? What would justify, you know, it's not just, oh, it was a primitive society full of savages. It was, no, these were human beings. They were fully realized human beings who biologically weren't really any different than you and me couple hundred years ago we're not talking about some vast evolutionary change so what's the difference the difference is the knowledge and culture in which we are raised teaches us a different set of values and and importances and that's the only difference and so if you kind of hold this belief this idea as sacrosanct and it cannot change cannot move cannot budge you have to budge you have to be the one who changes but that's not how facts or knowledge work. It's a, it's a progression. It's a river of change and progress. That's how we develop knowledge. It's, it's just, uh, it, but again, it's that counterintuitive thing. We don't go there automatically. We don't think about things in a progressive way. We think about, and I don't mean ideologically. I just mean in this series of steps that are ongoing and constantly changing. That's life. And trying to hold it still and keep it in place and keep it, you know, static, that's the losing battle. And every generation seems to have to learn that. It's it's this real thing with us, you know, it's quite fascinating. It's freaking frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so actually, to circle back, the second point that I was going to say earlier, you just, exp- it's so beautifully said. Hmm. So our knowledge is tense 
tentative. It's always tentative. Yes. And if we're waiting for absolute proof, we will never get there. But there's a problem. We're not comfortable with uncertainty. We're not comfortable with ambiguity, with not knowing. And so learning, you know what? And so I, I actually, in that epistemology exercise, I have my students proportion their belief zero to hundred percent. How sure are you that that's true? Please try to avoid zero and a hundred percent. Let's explore that later. Right? So, okay. Well, how sure are you as we move through class? How sure are you that's true? And what's fascinating is their proportion alters through the semester. At the beginning of the semester, they're really sure. And by like halfway through, they're like, I don't know, like 50. And then by the end of the semester, they learn to, you know, have a, a better um, judge of where that is. But they, they go from, I'm really sure to, I don't know anything at all, to, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is an awesome set of, that's an awesome progress in four months. I got to tell you. That's that's impressive to pull that off, even that much, because I'll tell you, that is major, major progress in the human being to get them from a place of, oh, no, this is how it is, you know, to, whoa, wait a minute, maybe, maybe, hold on, you know, and it is so disconcerting to people. Isn't it fascinating how it kind of throws them into this sort of turmoil not only cognitively but emotionally they just kind of flounder a little bit for a while because it's a difficult place to be to feel like you know it's like the universe starts getting a little hazy or wavy or kind of not so solid you know and it's like oh god what have i done but that's actually a better place to be because the fact of the matter is that is the universe, you know, from our perspective. It's, it's a wavy, gravy place of constantly changing ideas and, and facts. A and that would be a much more honest place to be in approaching life, I think. I, you know, that's my opinion on it. Yeah. And at one point, at some point, I always go like, I, I don't know, are we in the matrix? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a question. And it's, and it's one that serious thinkers have thought about, too, by the way. The whole simulation theory is not, you know, even that, even that is like, well, let's think about it. What about that? You know, it's awesome stuff. I, I just, I, I have found it to be the most difficult part of my own recovery process out of a cult thinking system is, is not only uh, accepting uncertainty, but embracing it. And, and that is a really hard place to, to have, for me to have gotten to, and I don't want to project that off on the rest of the world, but it seems to be the case with people I talk to that this is a, a difficulty for them as well. Mm. I would concur. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to, we're sort of reaching our time limit. So I'm because I only wanted to keep this for about an hour today. So I wanted to just kind of ask, you know, if this has sort of wet my audience's appetite in any way out there for you, for you folks out there, if you're curious about or interested in what, what we're talking about and how you might know more, find out more about this or find out more about, you know, what this is about or how to go about teaching this stuff, where would they go and, and how should they familiarize themselves with your work? Uh, thank you. So my website is where I try to organize nearly everything. So thinkingispower.com. Link, link um, below, have, folks, in the description section to the video here. Oh, see, 
me? Um, I have a, so if you wanted to explore something similar to my course, I have a section of the website I call foundations and um, it's the foundations of critical thinking, information literacy and science literacy that we've talked about. It's still being built, but it's a really good progression. I wrote it for my students and for anybody who is interested. So if you want to take the nice linear fashion, um, I have a topic section where I explore um, the kinds of um, topics that we could apply our critical thinking to. So things like alternative medicine and psychics and uh, that sort of thing. And um, then if you're an educator, I have a four educators uh, page as well, where I put some of my, um, the, the foundational writings, the, the toolkit that I developed to help my students evaluate claims, and even some of the lessons that I have uh, for, for students, I, I've got them included there. Uh, so structure of the website. If you want to see me on social, I, uh, primary channels are Thinking Power, uh, sorry, Facebook and Twitter, both at Thinking Powers. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I highly encourage you folks out there to check this stuff out. If you have any interest in even how do I go about teaching my kids this stuff? Because I can tell you, you know, we're, we're still years away from, you know, some kind of education revolution where this is going to be the norm in schools. But I really, truly, and with all my heart, I truly believe this is where education needs to go. And we're seeing, you know, some work on this in Europe. We're seeing some work on this across the United States. But it's patchwork. It's here. It's there. There are groups. There are, you know, organizations that take this stuff very seriously and are really trying to do the work. But for you as an individual, okay, well, you, you know, you're, you're, your kid's right there. What are you going to do? Well, here's a website. Here's information. Here's something you can use to start getting these, these skills rather than these facts, these skills across to your kids, uh, you know, regardless of, of your circumstances. So I highly, highly recommend you guys check that stuff out. Melanie, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be part of my show today. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a pleasure. Awesome. All right, folks. And as always, uh, if this show and this channel is educational, informative, and entertaining for you, and we truly hope it is, then uh, consider supporting it. This is 100% fan-funded by you guys. So Patreon, Venmo, PenPal, or PayPal, whatever, show me some love. Uh, and with that, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.